Welcome to week 11 of our series from the book of James, How Faith Works. Week 11 means we are, uh, we're just one week away from the end of this beautifully painful book that we've been walking through all fall. And um, we are arriving at, uh, this is really, we're going to spend two weeks in it, but there's, we're in the final section, which I, you know, is, is from the time that I began preaching, I've always it's just always been really meaningful to me as we move through a book of the Bible and we get to the end. You know, every, every one of these authors that God inspired to write, they wrote with this understanding that whatever they wrote could be the last thing they ever had the privilege of writing. Because certainly, when you see the founder of your belief system get nailed to a Roman cross, it kind of instills this idea in you that there might be a pretty short shelf life for people who claim to be his followers. And so we're looking at what James considered to be, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, um, really the most important thing that could leave, he could leave ringing in the, the minds and in the hearts of his hearers. And so it's with that mindset, I would ask you, let's approach uh, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. It says, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will restore him to health. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The urgent request of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. This is God's Word. What I just read to you (coughs) is uh, just, just my personal opinion. It is by a wide margin the most difficult and most intimidating passage in the book of James. If I could skip it, I would. And what I'm going to do today, uh, and I just ask you to give me permission to do this, I'm going to open a box of mysteries that I don't know how to sort out. But I don't have several lifetimes to study and prepare and think through that text. I had seven days. And so I'm going to give you the absolute best that I had in that time with the current level of wisdom that God uh, has given me. And the reason that, that I find this particular topic so intimidating, it's because it's about something that I don't know that anyone could ever claim to be anything more than a novice in, and that's prayer. So what we're going to talk about today is, is what James has to say regarding, first off, the power of prayer, not just in general, but specifically as it relates to physical healing. Uh, and then with that, we're also going to look at the qualifications of prayer. And, and so what's going to kind of serve as a guide for our thoughts this morning is first off, I want to lay before you, according to the Word of God, the necessary elements that make up powerful, life-changing, situation-altering prayer. Uh, and then secondly, we're going to talk about who on earth could possibly be qualified to offer this kind of prayer with any kind of confidence before the throne of God. <clears throat> so first off, uh, what is crystal clear is that James is, he's writing this passage to impress upon us the reality that prayer makes a dent in the world. In the second half of verse 16, we see the very famous phrase, 
The urgent request of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. That is simply James's way of saying that prayer changes things. And if you put that together with what James said earlier in chapter 4, verse 2, it's that there will be change in this world that will only happen as God's people pray for that specific change, that won't happen unless God's people pray for that specific change. Uh, Jesus made a stunning claim along these lines just before he went to the cross and returned to heaven. In John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, he said, I assure you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these because, here's why Jesus said, he said, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What Jesus is saying there is that when he returns to heaven, he would stand at the right hand of the throne of God, which is the symbol, it's the position of the one who is effectively governing the, the, the kingdom on behalf of the king. So what Jesus is saying there is that when he completes his work on the cross and ascends back into heaven, he will do so as the one governing everything that happens in the universe. And he said that his work that he started during his earthly ministry will continue to happen in greater measure through the prayers of his people once he ascends back to the throne. And, and so my point in saying that is simply that, that the, the clear, full teaching of the whole counsel of God the teaching of, and the teaching of Jesus himself is exactly in line with what James is saying here in the final verses of this letter, which is that prayer is powerful. However, the particular kind of prayer that James is talking about is prayer for physical healing. I'm going to read verses 14 through 16. It says, is anyone among you sick? And I'll just say this now, almost no serious commentary interprets that word sick as anything less than physical ailment. So to try to allegorize this away and make it, you know, so metaphorical that it doesn't really mean anything is something that basically no serious student of the Greek does. Let me read it again. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will restore him to health. If he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So James begins this section just talking about the importance of prayer in general. But here in these verses... He's talking about prayer as it relates to physical healing. And according to these verses, there are three necessary elements that need to make up what you could call the church's ministry of healing for the sick. Three necessary elements that need to combine. And we're going we're gonna to take some time walking through all three of them. I'll give them to you on the front end. It's this thing that the Word of God calls the prayer of faith. Uh, it's anointing with oil, and it's the confession of sin. So let's walk through all three of them. First off, James talks about the necessity of this thing called the prayer of faith. Before, before we talk about what the prayer of faith is, I think it would be, in some ways, uh, more fruitful on the front end to just be clear about what the prayer of faith is not. Some people believe, maybe you've heard this before, that the prayer of faith is a prayer of absolute certainty with no doubts whatsoever. Uh, to believe that that's what James is talking about here 
has a really devastating effect because what that means is that if this prayer for a sick person is not answered, then the only possible explanation for the lack of healing would be that someone doesn't have enough faith. And so what that does is, is add the already horrible burden of somebody that's undergoing physical affliction. It adds to that a spiritual affliction where now they have to move through life believing that the reason that they're sick in ways that the people around them are not sick is because somehow they have a more deficient or less faith than everybody else, which I'll tell you is a completely unbiblical idea. And to anyone who would say otherwise you'll find it very difficult to explain a very peculiar encounter that Jesus had with someone in in Mark's gospel account, chapter 9. You're probably familiar with this, but in Mark chapter 9, the father of a demon-possessed boy came to Jesus asking Jesus to heal him. And this is how the exchange took place. The man said, if you can do anything, heal my son. Jesus answered, Everything is possible to the one who believes, and the man replied, and and I'll probably repeat this more than once, I think this is the most honest exchange anyone ever had with Jesus. The man looked Jesus in the eye and said, I do believe, but I need you to help my unbelief. I don't know that, that there's any exchange in the gospel accounts between an individual in Jesus that betrays more self-awareness on the part of the recipient of Jesus' grace than the the father in Mark chapter 9. What he's saying in no uncertain terms is, I'm a mess, and I'm not going to pretend like I'm anything more than that before who might be the son of God. And I wish that I could say I had this unwavering belief, this rock-solid certainty that you absolutely are going to heal my son, but I don't have that. I don't have that kind of faith. But instead of, of waiting around for my faith to perfect itself, which is really just an exercise in futility and hubris, what that man was essentially coming to Jesus with was a posture of heart that said, I'm just going to come to you exactly as I am, trusting that your strength does not depend on my strength. And stunningly, Jesus honored the man's faith, and he grants the man's request, and he healed the man's son. And so to anybody who would say that that God cannot heal and will not heal unless there's absolute rock-solid certainty, my question would be, and it's it's a question that I'm not raising, it's it's what that account in, in Mark chapter 9 raises, is what about that man? Why would Jesus First off, why would the Holy Spirit of God see fit to record that account timelessly for us in God's Word? And why would Jesus honor faith like that? Why would Jesus honor faith like that? And the answer is because the prayer of faith, instead of being this kind of psychological maneuvering where we convince ourselves that we don't really have any doubts, which in and of itself is almost a form of works-based righteousness, what the prayer of faith is, biblically speaking, it's about you and I coming before Jesus with our small and imperfect faith trusting that Jesus' ability does not depend on our strength. So we take everything that we are before him, trusting that he's powerful enough to fill in the gaps for us. That's the prayer of faith. All right, now the second element that's meant to combine to become this powerful prayer that James talks about here is something that I think is, you know, the further we've, we've, we've gotten culturally from the Bible, this particular aspect is more and more foreign, especially to modern people. It's this idea of the uh, anointing with olive oil. <coughs> so uh, first off, to understand um, 
to understand the significance of olive oil, uh, you first have to understand how people in James's day would have un- understood this, how, how they viewed olive oil. And what is clear in both Old and New Testament is that oil did have a, a, it had a very significant spiritual symbolism. It basically represented uh, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. However, and this is so key in understanding what James is really getting at here and what it means for us today, Olive oil in James's day also represented essentially the peak of medical advancement. So for instance, in his parable uh, of the Good Samaritan, Jesus told the story of a Good Samaritan who stopped on the side of the road uh, to care for a man who had been beaten and bloodied and left for dead by robbers. But when the Good Samaritan uh, knelt beside the man, he, he did two things. He poured wine over him and he pour, poured oil over him. And the reason for that is because in James's day, wine, uh, first off, was used for, for antiseptic purposes. It was used for sterilizing the wounds. But in James's day, oil was used for soothing the body. It was considered medicine. And so for, for, for James in, in uh, this passage to call for not only praying for sick people, but also anointing them with oil, what he's, what he's walking us through here is the incredible balance that you find in Scripture. To, to call for the anointing of oil as you pray for sick people, what James is essentially talking about is the reality that prayer is never m- meant to replace uh, the medical advances that God allows us uh, to achieve through His common grace. And, and so here's what this means, and maybe this is really important for somebody, that if you've ever heard stories of the kind of radical, fundamentalist, religious families that allow their children to die for easily preventable diseases because they believe that a simple round of antibiotics would betray a lack of faith in God's healing ability. I just want to show you here from James chapter 5 that the very first followers of Jesus would have thought that that was ridiculous. That from, from early on, the first guiding documents that are meant to guide the, the, the thoughts and the lives of Jesus' followers, what we're being presented with is this idea that grace and nature are not at odds with each other. That they're, that they're meant to complement and support one another. That's what James is talking about when he talks about anointing with oil. But thirdly, the last element here is, is this idea of the confession of sins. So, so we're told here, just to recap, that when you're doing the church's ministry of, of, of healing over a sick person, first off, you pray specifically and fervently that God would heal them. Secondly, you do that uh, alongside making sure that they get the best pot- possible medical care that's available. Uh, but then thirdly, what James is saying here, and, and it kind of feels like it's coming out of nowhere, is he's talking about the importance of the confession to sin along with this. Now, you, you probably heard me say something like this if you've been a part of this series, but James almost as a hobby, it seems like, has this, this proclivity for talking about a specific subject and then throwing in a verse or a command or an idea that leaves you wondering, what on earth does that have to do with anything else? Why is James, in the middle of of talking about physical healing, why does he pivot and almost interrupt himself to talk about the confession of sin? Here's what's going on here. We're being told that that, um, while you're engaged in healing ministry, you should make sure that, that spiritual therapy is taking place alongside physical therapy. We're told that when a Christian is sick and seeking physical healing, that sick Christian must examine his or her heart to see sins that they can then confess and repent of for the sake of renewal in their relationship with God. Now, now let me again ask the question, why is this being brought up here? And I'm going to give you, I'm g- give you an answer, but please appreciate I'm getting ready to walk a very difficult theological tightrope. And hopefully this is not, 
Hopefully, by the time I'm done explaining this, it's clear. According to the Bible, there is a, there's a very deep and very mysterious connection between our spiritual and physical condition to the point that one has the ability to affect the other. <clears throat> so here's what I mean. <clears throat> in the summer of 2012, I basically spent that entire summer talking with a counselor. It was a pivotal time in my life. Uh, I can look back on that time in my life and see that was really, that time was when I, um, I discovered that it was God's will for me to leave my old career behind and come on at Severn and, and actually also to marry Katie. It was this kind of like undoing and remaking time in my life. I was in the counselor's office every week <clears throat> trying to find out how things had affected me and all that kind of stuff. And I remember my counselor walked me through this idea that there was four categories of human need. He said that we are physical creatures that have physical needs. You know, that's, that's uh, food and drink and rest and things like that. We're mental creatures uh, that have mental needs. We're emotional creatures that have emotional needs. And we're, we're spiritual creatures that have spiritual needs. Now, let me just kind of say this to that. Who knows if that's accurate? Who knows if we don't have a whole, whole lot more aspects to our nature than that? But I'll tell you this, and this is the reason I bring it up. According to the Bible, a part of what it means to be creatures made in the image of God is that we are deeply complex, multifaceted creatures. We're not just physical beings. We're not just mental beings. We're not just spiritual beings. We're this blend of, of really all of those things. And if you want a biblical verse that you can tie that idea to, let me, let me read Proverbs 14.30. It says, A tranquil heart is life to the body, but jealousy is rottenness to the bones. Now, here's what I, if I didn't just read that verse to you, here's what I think most people would assume the Bible would say, because I think, I'm kind of sh shooting in the dark here, but I think most people that aren't really deeply acquainted with Scripture would assume that the Bible is, is really just interested in our physical nature and the physical, or pardon me, our spiritual nature and the spiritual needs that we have. So I think most people would think that that, that verse would say, a tranquil heart is life to the spirit and jealousy is rottenness to the soul, but that's not what it says. What it says is that tranquility of heart and jealousy, that are, both of which are spiritual conditions, that they have a profound impact on our physical condition. And this is something that, that, that modern medical science has proven countless times, that things like anger and bitterness uh, and, and envy and holding a grudge and lack of forgiveness, all of those things that the Bible says are deeply spiritual connect, uh, uh, conditions, if they remain undealt with in the human heart and they're, they're fed into and they fester, they will eventually produce physical sickness in us. And so I, I simply say that to say that many of our physical conditions can have spiritual underlying causes, but here's the tightrope that I want to walk. Not only does the Bible say that, but it also says, and it's, it's full of examples of people who had physical conditions with absolutely no spiritual underlying cause. So let me give you just, just two, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. Probably the most famous example of this in the Old Testament is Job, who goes through about as much physical suffering as a human being can. And if you remember, it's Job's friends, those miserable counselors that enter into his life and tell him, Job, there's no way God would allow you to phys physically suffer if there was not a spiritual disease, there's got to be sin causing this. And at the end of the book of Job, if you read it through to the end, Job's friends are rebuked by God while Job is vindicated. And it's clear that his suffering never had a spiritual cause. In the New Testament, we see a similar example in John chapter 9 where Jesus is walking along the road. They come across a man who was born blind 
And Jesus' disciples say, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus rebukes his disciples and tells them that's a wrong question. It doesn't have a right answer. No sin is underneath this cause. So what's my point? Here it is. And this is, a, this is the, the kind of nuance we would expect to see in a book that's authored by God himself. The, the, the teaching of the whole council of Scripture is that not always, but sometimes, and maybe even more than we realize, uh, our surface-level physical conditions can have underlying spiritual causes. And all that means is that when a Christian finds themselves physically ill, that is a prime opportunity for us to, to stop, to slow down, to search ourselves, and to examine our spiritual condition because by God's design, oftentimes spiritual healing can lead to physical healing. However, uh, not only, and I think lived experience bears this out, not only can the spiritual lead to the physical, but the opposite's also true, that, that the spirit, pardon me, that the physical this is getting real complicated. Not only can the spiritual lead to the physical, but, but, but vice versa. The physical can lead to the spiritual. Here's what I mean by that. I'm a young pastor, and so I haven't had the opportunity to do a, you know, a whole lot of hospital work. However, uh, my uncle, who founded this church, has done more than his fair share of, of hospital work in his lifetime, and I'll never forget something that he told me. He told me that in something like over 40 years of ministry, how he noticed that there were specific people, almost always men, that he would see move in and out of health, and how often, every once in a while, he would come across somebody who would, who, all throughout their life, they would never be humbled spiritually until they were humbled physically. And it was only when they were face-to-face -face with their own mortality and the brevity of, of life that they were finally willing to see their spiritual condition. And that makes perfect sense, because when our bodies begin to fail us, it's then that the, the illusion of our self-sovereignty begins to fade away in the periphery. And we come sometimes painfully to terms with how, how weak and how fragile and how vulnerable we really are. And so oftentimes it's only when we experience physical breakdown that we can finally begin to see our spiritual state. And so the reason that James is bringing up this idea of the confession of sin in the midst of a conversation about physical healing is because by God's design... Sometimes the spiritual can lead to the physical, and sometimes the physical can lead to the spiritual. But the point is that the two must always go hand in hand. And so the three elements of, of powerful prayer according to these verses are, first off, we should pray the prayer of faith. We should ask boldly and specifically for healing. Secondly, we should do so while seeking the medical advancements and technologies that God has made available to us by his common grace. But thirdly, we should never prioritize our physical health over our spiritual health because the two are meant to be a pair. All of that being said, the next question that I have is the qualifications of powerful prayer, meaning who is actually qualified to do this? And the answer of this passage is that you have to be righteous. You, you saw that. We already read that in verse 16. It says, a powerful prayer, an effective prayer, is the prayer of a righteous man. Now, if that's all that James said and he just closed the book down, I don't think that leaves anybody with a great deal of confidence. However, in telling us what a righteous man looks like, the specific example that James holds up for us is the example of Elijah. And his example, when studied, from start to finish as recorded in Scripture, should be incredibly encouraging to us. I found this in the commentary this week. As soon as I came across this, I knew I was going to share it with you. It says, The word righteous has a forbidding ring. 
It seems to rule us and our poor prayers out of court. And of course, if we're meant to understand it in the sense of a perfect moral character and integrity, it must do so. But this is not what James means. And it is for this reason that he introduces the illustration of Elijah, who he notes was a man of like nature with ourselves. <laughs> and as I read this, I wonder, I wonder who this is going to hit home for this morning. Elijah could rise to the heights of faith and commitment and fall into the depths of despair and depression. If any idea how encouraging that is to me. Elijah could be brave and resolute sometimes and then fly for his life at a whiff of danger. Has anybody ever seen in their own heart this paradoxical blend of courage and cowardice? Elijah says God can use somebody like you too. Elijah could be selfless in his concern for others and then filled with self-pity. And otherwise, he was an ordinary person, but he was right with God. This is part of the wonder of the way of prayer. Those who by grace have been given the status of righteousness in God's sight have been brought into the realm where effective prayer operates and have been given the right to exercise a ministry of prayer. Now, I want to I share with you that as good as that sounds to me, that's not enough for me. The, the idea of a hope as vague as, you know, Elijah really wasn't that great a guy, but, but he was considered righteous and God heard his prayers, and I know I'm not that great of a person, and so maybe I can make the grade for righteous and God can hear my prayers. I'm just going to be candid with you. I need a hope that has more substance to it than that. I need a hope that has handles on it in a way that that doesn't. And the good news of the gospel is that we have that kind of hope in Jesus. All right, if, if you have ever read this passage in the King James Version of the Bible, then you know that, that there's this kind of iconic phrasing uh, right in the middle of the heart of this passage. It says, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That's the King James Version of the Bible. The implied statement of James there, if you just think about this, that if the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, what that means is that the prayer of a more righteous man would avail even more. But what that logically means is that the prayer of a perfectly righteous man, in other words, the prayer of someone whose heart and mind and will were perfectly in line with God to the point that they only ever asked God for that which was his will, According to the promise of this verse, the prayer of a perfectly righteous man would perfectly avail. And the gospel says that you and I have that perfectly righteous man in Jesus. I'm going I'm to read this to you. This is from Romans chapter 8, verse 34. This is Paul writing to Christians about the assurance and the confidence they can have because of Jesus. In Romans 8, 34, Paul begins with this... Um, rhetorical question. He says, who is the one who condemns? I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but the implied answer to that question is, what, what Paul's asking here is, who can bring condemnation against the elect, against those that God has saved? The implied answer is, if anybody could do that, it's Jesus. And he, here, here's why I say that. One thing that every single person who listens to this teaching has in common is that you and I have wounded people with our sin. Most likely, actually, I'm going to say certainly, we have wounded people to a greater degree than we realize. However, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, no one has ever been wounded more by your and my sin than Jesus, because no one has ever had to pay for our sin other than Jesus. 
And so Paul's point here is that if anyone could rightly condemn you for what you have cost them with your sin, and if anyone could rightly condemn you for the way that you and I abuse and fail to appreciate the grace and the mercy that we have on this side of a relationship with Jesus, if anybody could decide to be done with this, it's Jesus. But here's what Paul goes on to say. Christ Jesus is the one who died. But even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us. I don't know if you've ever considered this, but what that verse is promising you is the moment you gave your life to Jesus, the risen son of God, standing at the right hand of the throne of God, who according to Hebrews upholds the universe by the word of his power, the one who overcame sin and death lives to pray for you personally. He never stops doing it. I remember back in 2018, <coughs> we did a series through the I Am statements in John's gospel account. And while we were putting that series together, it, it, it dawned on us that one of the things that every one of those speeches by Jesus had in common is that the, the crowds that gathered to originally hear those I Am statements were largely comprised of people who knew about Jesus but hadn't, had not made the personal decision to trust in Jesus. And so we began, we began to pray on the front end of that series that those who, who would hear it, that, that God would bring there, that God would minister to them, and that they would make the decision to go from knowing about Jesus to knowing him in a personal way. And I explained that uh, on the front end of that series. I remember, I, th- I believe it was at the end of week one of that series, I just explained, hey, I just want you to know whoever you are tuning in, either in person or online, we prayed for you when we put this series together. I had somebody, I had somebody DM me on Instagram who was serving overseas at the time reach out to me and say when they heard those words, when they heard that people from 20 Gambrels Road were praying for them, they lost it just began to weep. Because by God's design, there's just, there's, and I know you know what I'm talking about, there's something deeply meaningful when you hear that someone else is going before God the Father, approaching the throne of grace on your behalf for your well-being. There's very few things as meaningful for that. And what the Word of God just promised everyone who's given their life to Jesus, that Jesus Christ never stops praying for you personally. And the reason that that should, should thrill us and give us a kind of confidence is, is because, I don't, you're probably familiar with this, there's this particular scene in Peter's life where Jesus tells Peter, just before he goes to the cross, he says, Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter, so full of hubris and so lacking in self-awareness, so arrogant, he says, I would never do that. Maybe every other one of your followers do that. I would never do that. And Peter, Jesus looks at Peter, he says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but, but here's what Jesus said to him, but I have prayed for you. And he said, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And what, what's so meaningful to me about that exchange is that Jesus did not say, I've prayed for you, Peter, and if you happen to turn back, then you'll have this calling in your life. He said, I've already prayed for you. Knowing what you're getting ready to do, knowing... <laughs> the magnitude of the failure that you're about to be guilty of, Jesus says, I know that you coming back is not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And the reason Jesus could have that kind of certainty is because he is what this verse points us to. He is the perfectly righteous man whose prayers perfectly avail, whose prayers will never be turned down. And the hope that we have as God's people is that the same prayer that Jesus prayed over Peter, he prays for every single one of his children, that our faith will not fail 
that the work that God begins in us will be carried forth to the completion, that none of us will be ashamed when we stand before God at the end of our lives. And more than simply praying for us as the righteous man, the promise of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, through his finished work on Calvary, he actually confers that righteousness onto us so that when God sees us, he sees his own perfect, sinless righteousness staring him in the face. Now, I'm about to share a story with you that two disclaimers here. I don't know if this is true or just some happy legend. Uh, And I also can't exactly remember who exactly the main character is. So it's not my strongest analogy, but I'm giving you what I got. I Literally, I got up at 5 a.m. this morning desperately Googling for this thing, and I couldn't find it, but it's not really necessary, and it makes a really powerful point. As I remember it, I think it was Julius Caesar on one occasion had one of his lieutenants come to him. And the lieutenant informed Caesar that he was getting married, and he asked if he could dip into the royal treasury so that he could throw his bride the wedding that he believed she deserved. And without thinking, Caesar said, hey, you've laid down your life on the battlefield. You've been incredibly loyal. Go for it. And so this lieutenant entered into the royal treasury, but he took a breathtakingly exorbitant amount of money. And so one of Caesar's advisors came to him uh, and said, Caesar, when you okayed that request, you actually never specified the amount, and I regret to inform you that he, he has robbed us blind for this, this wedding. It's kind of, you know, audacious. Uh, how would you like to respond to this? And without thinking, as the legend goes, Caesar said, we're not going to respond to this at all. You misunderstand. That man did not disrespect me. He honored me in a way that no man ever has. Because for him to enter into my treasury, assuming that it would be okay to take that much wealth from it, means that he thinks me a good king and a generous king, and a king who loves his servants. That man has not disrespected me. He's honored me. As I said, I have no idea whether that's true or Julius Caesar murdered the guy, but the point remains, <laughs> point remains, I do know this, that the reason that James speaks of prayer this way at the close of this letter is because he wants to instill that same desire in us when we approach the throne of grace. And the rest of Scripture beckons to us as God's people that when we approach the throne of grace and prayer, we do so with boldness and we do so with confidence, believing, and our prayers proving that we believe that God is a good king, he's a generous king, he's a king that loves to unload his riches on his sons and daughters. That's why a man named Thomas Newton famously wrote in one of his hymns, Thou art coming before a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his love and power are such, none can ever ask too much. And that brings a smile to my face. So so here's where we are. I wish we could end right there because that would have been the high note. But I feel like I'd be failing you if I did that. Because there is an elephant in the room that this passage of Scripture leaves us with. Even, Even if you're not thinking of it right now, I'm confident. If you went home and you looked at this passage, you'd say, I can't believe he didn't at least try to speak to this. The elephant in the room is something that we already read. It's found in verse 15. Verse 15 straightforwardly says, the prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will restore him to health. Now, I said this on the front end. No serious commentator allegorizes that claim because the temptation is to look at that and say, well, in the resurrection, you know, there's not going to be any, any sickness or any crying or any tears. That's just very clearly not what James is talking about. He's talking about immediate physical relief from physical ailment. And so if you take just this one passage out of context, then you would, you would be forced to come to the conclusion 
that if we pray for someone's healing and that person don't recover, it's because somebody's faith was, was deficient, either that of the prayer or that of the prayee. And that, I'll just tell you, that cannot be what this means. And I, I can say that with confidence because Scripture is full of people who were full of faith that never had their requests answered the way they asked. You think about Moses who begged and pleaded that God would allow him to live to stand in the promised land. His request was denied. You think about King David who begged and pleaded that God would spare the life of his son. His request was denied. Elijah who begged and pleaded, God, let me see revival. Use me powerfully in my lifetime to affect real lasting spiritual change in the lives of my countrymen. It never happened. On in the New Testament, you think about Paul the Apostle who prayed fervently, desperately, three times, God, would you take this thorn from my flesh, this messenger of Satan sent to torment me? God said no. And of course, the most famous example of this is Jesus Christ himself who had his unanswered prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, if there's any other way to do this, if there's any way to let, then let this cup pass from me, but there was no other way. And so let me first say this, that for all of the people that God has brought here today in person or online who know the horrible sting of unanswered prayer, I just want you to know that you stand in incredible company. What I mean by that is if you, listening to this right now, if you know what it's like to pray that God would take you to a place that he, he never brought you, then you stand with Moses. If you know what it's like to pray that God would use you and you would, you, you would see God use you in a way that, that would affect life change in other people, but you haven't seen that, then you stand with Elijah. If, if you know what it's like to pray for a loved one, that they would recover, to see that request denied, then you know what it's like to stand with David. And, and if you know what it's like to pray desperately that God would take something from you, then you stand not only with Paul the Apostle, but with Jesus Christ himself. And so the question is, what are we to do with, an, with unanswered prayer? And please, please hear me when I say this. I know that I'm, I'm stepping on holy ground here. I'm a 35-year-old man. I, God has given me an unbelievably comfortable life, and I know full well that God's brought people here today who have experienced suffering that I don't know how well I'd walk through it if I was in your shoes. But if I, if I can, in, in my own imperfect way, let me end today by trying to speak to what are we supposed to do biblically with unanswered prayer. And let, let me offer this. If God seriously wrote a blank check to any of us, that whatever we asked, as long as we sincerely believe that it would be good for us, good for others, or good for God's glory, that God would grant it with no conditions, this might sound funny, but I'm, I'm being deadly serious. If, if God did that for any of us and we had half a brain in our heads, we would never pray again and our friends would ask us to stop praying for them. And the reason that I say that, and, and we touched on this a couple weeks ago, is because at any given point in our lives, we simply do not have enough information to know what we actually need. We do not have enough information to know what is actually good for us. You know, and that's why it's so often in hindsight and only in hindsight we can look back retroactively and see it's those things that we beg God to take away from us or beg God to never lead us through in the first place that those themselves were the necessary mechanisms of our deliverance. I don't know that there's a single exception to this in all of God's dealing with people as long as he's been dealing with people. So for God to write a blank check and say, I'll give you whatever you want without condition would be nothing short of, pardon the phrase, divine negligence. 
And the God that, that Scripture tells us God is simply loves us too much to do that. And so let me, one more time, let me ask the question, how are we to understand unanswered prayer? The best answer that I have and the only answer that Scripture allows me to offer anyone else is that when God does not answer our prayers the way that we desire, it's because he loves us too much to give us what we've asked him for. This is exactly what Jesus was getting at in Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 13. This is right after Jesus taught us to pray by giving us the Lord's Prayer. He said, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I taught that passage, I think it was almost five years ago, for the first time. And when I spent a week sitting on those words, I felt like I was just beginning to understand what Jesus was really saying there. What Jesus does in that passage is he deliberately compares snakes, uh, pardon me, fish and eggs, which were necessary for people's survival in that day, to snakes and scorpions, which were things that if you put your hand on them, they would eventually sting you causing you a great deal of pain and potentially killing you. And so what you can intuit from Jesus' words there is that the reason unanswered prayer is so painful for us, this is such a hard thing for me to say. It's an easy thing for me to say, but it's a biblical thing to say. The reason Jesus is saying unanswered prayer is so difficult for us to grapple with is because we are so convinced that we know the difference between fish and eggs and snakes snakes and scorpions. We are so convinced with our finite understanding of our own lives that we know the difference between something that's good for us and something that will destroy us. But on a cosmic scale, Scripture reminds us over and over again we simply don't. Now, I feel like I've been returning to this particular character's life to prove about a billion different points lately, but the first person that came to mind when I thought about this concept was Joseph in the Old Testament. And I'm almost done. I'd ask you to just lean in here. But Joseph's story, we talked about it a couple, couple of weeks ago, is, is full of tragedy. He's betrayed by his brothers. He's stripped of his coat of colors. He's thrown into a pit. He's sold into slavery and into a foreign land, surrounded by people who don't love him. He's falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit. He's left in jail. He's forgotten about. He's he's overlooked. He's in this dark, desolate place, and God left him there for a really long period of time. And you can look at Joseph's life and say, man, it's a shame that all those bad things happened. But, you know, God made sure that there was a bow at the end of the story. But Joseph didn't even understand his own life that way. When you zoom out from the life of Joseph, it's not just that God found a way to not let those bad things have the final word. The way that God works is that those bad things were necessary in Joseph's life. Every single one of them were necessary in Joseph's life, both in making him the person that God called him to be and in putting him in the position that God called him to be in so that he could do what God called him to do. If a single detail of Joseph's life had been changed then not only would he have died, but his family would have died. Countless families in the ancient Near East during that seven-year famine would have died, and the line of Abraham would have been snuffed out right then and there. It had to happen exactly the way that it happened. And I'll just let you into my own relationship with God here as we close. When when I've been thinking about the life of Joseph, the question that I'm coming away with, it's not about, oh, that's so inspiring or that's warm and fuzzy or look what God can do. The question that's really been moving me recently is, is, is this. And maybe this is for somebody else. Maybe it's for just me, but I'm just letting you into my relationship with God. The question is, 
if that, if, if that was necessary in Joseph's life, if Joseph needed God to lead all of, all, him through all of that, if that was necessary for him, what makes me think it wouldn't be necessary for me? If Joseph needed to be betrayed by his brothers, then what makes me think that as a part of my divinely designed sanctification program by God, why wouldn't I think that I need to know what it's like to be betrayed by people I trusted? If Joseph needed to be stripped of his coat of many colors, then why would I think God wouldn't need to take something from me that I consider precious, that I tend to look for my identity and build my sense of self-worth in? If, if Joseph needed to have uh, his character maligned and his motives questions and to be unfairly accused of something he didn't commit, why would any of us think that we don't need to experience the same thing? If Joseph needed to be thrown into these dungeons, these pits, these dark places and left there, forced to, to deal with these feelings that he's been forgotten, he's been passed over, he's been overlooked, God doesn't care about him, nobody else cares about him. If that was necessary to do what God wanted to do in Joseph's life, then why would any of us think that it wouldn't be necessary for us? And I say that knowing that's not a particularly light and fluffy, encouraging thing, but maybe it'll help somebody process with a little bit more clarity what they're going through this morning. I say all of this to say that according to Jesus' words about prayer, the only reason, the only reason, according to Jesus, that God the Father would not give one of his children a good gift that we've asked for is that that gift really isn't what we think it is. That what it actually is, it's a, it's a snake it's a scorpion. It's something that if we put our hand on it, it would sting us. It would cause us pain. It would kill us. And our Heavenly Father loves us too much to stand on the sidelines and let that happen. And so finally and ultimately, the only thing we can do is maybe the hardest thing we're ever going to have to do, which is continually lay our requests before God, trusting that God withholds what God withholds because God sees what only God sees. I'm going to call the worship team up, and I'm going to leave you today with a quote from Tim Keller's book on prayer. <clears throat> on the one hand, we know that we have not because we ask not. James chapter 4, verse 2. There are many goods that God will not give us unless we honor him and make our hearts safe to receive them through prayer. But on the other hand, what thoughtful persons, knowing the limits of their own wisdom, would dare to pray if they thought God would invariably give them their wishes? Endless stories of genies, lamps, and wishes illustrate the almost cliched truth that our desires are, as we have seen, discordantly arranged and often fatally unwise. However, there is nothing to fear. God will not give us anything contrary to his will, and that will always include what is best for us in the long run. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We can therefore pray confidently because he won't give us everything we want. He so tempers the outcome of events according to his incomprehensible plan that the prayers of the saints, which are a mixture of faith and error, are not nullified. Ask and you shall receive. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. Ask with confidence and hope. Don't be afraid that you will ask for the wrong thing. Of course you will. God tempers the outcome with his incomprehensible wisdom. Cry, ask, and appeal. You will get many answers. Finally, where you do not get an answer or where the answer is not what you want, use prayer to enable you to rest in his will. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> 
Father God, thank you for the gift of prayer that uh, I don't think we'll ever begin to scratch the surface of in this life. All that we can say in the end is that you've called us to come to you, to unload our burdens and our requests and our emotions and our desires in your presence. Please teach us to be a community of prayer, people that approach the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, with hopeful expectation that you are who you've told us you are, that you're a loving father, that you're a sovereign king, that you're generous and you're kind and you desire to bestow good gifts on your children. And when you withhold what we ask you to give us, please help us to trust you that in the end, even if not in this life, Every question is going to have an answer. Every hurt is going to be healed. And we're going to know that you are only ever operating with our best interests in mind. Only ever operating, not just as a wise king, but a loving father. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.